The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. And in this case, right, if you are saying today a candidate is not qualified, he could be qualified in a few months or in a year if Congress acts and makes him qualified. And that just kind of changes the dynamics of the factual universe you're looking at. And again, to this notion that Congress, one is the, the question of self-execution, but another is a question of the ability to lift the disability and whether or not that sort of weighs into how courts sort of view this or treat this going forward as something inappropriate for them. I'm Alan Rosenstein, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Minnesota and Senior Editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for November 24th, 2023. In the past few weeks, there have been several notable developments in lawsuits seeking to disqualify Donald Trump from the 2024 election under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. The Minnesota Supreme Court dismissed a case against Trump, but invited the petitioners to refile once Trump won the GOP nomination. A court in Michigan rejected a challenge to Trump's eligibility on the grounds that Congress, not the court, should ultimately decide. And most recently, a Colorado trial judge held that, although Trump did engage in insurrection before and during January 6th, Section 3 does not apply to presidents. As these and other cases make their way through the courts, and with the potential that the Supreme Court will at some point weigh in, we're bringing you another portion of a conference held last month at the University of Minnesota Law School. For a previous excerpt, see the November 1st edition of the Law for Podcast. This panel, focusing on the interplay between Section 3 challenges and election law, was moderated by the University of Minnesota Law School Professor Nick Bednar and featured Professors Ned Foley of the Ohio State College of Law, Professor Derek Muller of Notre Dame Law School, and Professor Andrea Katz of Washington University School of Law. It's the Lawfare Podcast, November 24th. What disqualifying Trump from the 2024 ballot would mean for election law. Last hour, we heard about the history that supports or refutes the argument that Section 3 disqualifies former President Trump from serving a second term as president. In this hour, we will ask, how did these arguments get implemented? We will shift our attention to the legal hurdles facing plaintiffs who seek to use these theories to challenge President Trump's eligibility in the 2024 election. Broadly, plaintiffs in these cases face two hurdles. First, do cases involving Section 3 disqualification present a justiciable question? And second, will plaintiffs be able to establish the merits in this particular case? We are honored to have a group of distinguished panelists here who can help us answer these questions. And so before we get too in the weeds, I want to ask each of you, who has the harder argument in this case? The plaintiffs seeking President Trump's disqualification 
or those seeking to keep him on the ballot? And we'll start with Professor Katz. Well, first, I'm honored to be here. Um, this is a very kind of innovative uh, medium. I think the conversation has already shown the kind of collaborative nature of the conversation that we're hoping to have here. So uh, it's great to be part of it. Um, I'm going to just echo what uh, Professor Hickman said on the prior panel. Um, plaintiffs have to run the table, and that already um, puts them facing a steep uphill. Um, to take a sort of legal realist approach to this, uh, or maybe really just to state the obvious, a court that takes on the question of excluding the current GOP frontrunner from an election is obviously going to be attracting a lot of heat um, for such a decision. Um, and if a court wanted to avoid such heat, uh, there are plenty of off-ramps that they can employ. Um, so therefore, it's on the onus of the plaintiffs to convince them not to take any of the off-ramps. Um, last night at dinner, I think we were talking, and Professor Graber named about eight uh, possible off-ramps. But um, personally, I don't think all of these are serious disputes. But again, I think if a court decided that they were, um, well, for the plaintiffs, there goes your case. So a few of the ones that I can think of, um, some have been covered already. Does the 14th Amendment Section 3 apply to current conflicts, or did it just have the Civil War in mind? Um, does Section 3 apply to the president? Um, did an insurrection take place on January 6th? Did Trump engage in said insurrection? Can a person be disqualified from the ballot for insurrection without having been formally uh, criminally convicted of the federal charge of insurrection? Um, can a person be disqualified from the ballot without a congressional law clarifying their intentions under the 14th Amendment? Um, assuming that no law is required, can a state secretary simply enter a disqualification under their own authority, or do they need a judicial order applying Section 3 first? And finally, there's the important question which we should neglect, is using Section 3 a good idea at all? So <laughs> there you have it. That's eight that I thought of uh, last night while I was drawing up thoughts for this. I don't think all of them are seriously in dispute as a matter of law, but my point is um, if a court uh, answers no to any of these, the plaintiffs lose. So I'll, I'll leave my thoughts there. Yeah, so I would agree, I think, um Plaintiffs always have not just the burden, but they have to win on every element. And uh, given the number of ways off here, I think it's going to be a great challenge. And particularly, um, uh, the, the separate wrinkle to think about is in many states, uh, there are no mechanisms to exclude disqualified can or unqualified candidates from the ballot. Um, so you potentially have a patchwork argument where even if the plaintiffs win, uh, they, that a candidate could be excluded only in some states but not others. It depends on how obstinate the Republican National Committee is uh, <laughs> when it comes to the 2024 election. So that, that just adds an extra layer of complexity, that even when the Supreme Court speaks, the implementing mechanics of that happen on the ballot state by state. Um, and, uh, and, and through the party's mechanism about what to do with a uh, candidate deemed disqualified by a federal court, which just adds to uh, the additional uncertainty beyond those that we've already talked about. Um, I would add, I agree with everything that both uh, Andrea and Derek just said, but I'd add, let's think about the consequences of the U.S. Supreme Court taking one of these off-ramps, um, and it may depend on which of the eight <laughs> that uh, they take, and that is, 
the biggest thing that I fear is that if the U.S. Supreme Court doesn't decide this issue on the merits one way or the other, our country is open to the possibility that Congress will feel empowered to decide this on January 6, 2025. Now, for that to happen, of course, that would you would have to assume that President Trump was on the ballot uh, uh, for the primaries, wins the nomination on the ballot in November, wins the Electoral College, uh, at least 270 electoral votes, whether he gets the national popular vote or not. And then you know, Congress meets to count the electoral votes in the joint session under the 12th Amendment. But this issue would not be the kind of issue that came up on January 6, 2021, which was about whether or not uh, electors were appointed in the states properly over the popular vote. This would be, assume the electors were all appointed properly, there would still be an issue whether the winning candidate was qualified to take office two weeks later on Inauguration Day. And we can go into the details of, of this uh, under the new uh, federal statute, the Electoral Count Reform Act, and the, Derek's written a lot about the, the procedures of that. But I think in terms of, is this a good idea or not, Andrea's last question, I think that it's much more perilous, much more fraught for the country uh, in terms of public protests, you know, risks of violence, and so forth, if um, Congress were to try to take away President Trump's hypothetical victory after voters had voted in November. Um, so I think it's imperative for the sake of the country for the U.S. Supreme Court to decide he's either qualified, yes, or he's, quali or he's not qualified before the Republican National Convention next July. Uh, and then if he's qualified, according to the U.S. Supreme Court, you run the election the way it's been going so far. Uh, and, but if he's not qualified, obviously his supporters will be extremely upset, as, as Professor Blackman said. But, but the, both the Republican Party in its convention and the country as a whole could handle that disqualification ruling uh, in before July of 2024, much better than it could handle it in January of, of 2025. Um, why don't I stop there? We could explore the ways that different off-ramps off affect the court's role. It has to do with it, whether it's procedural or on the merits or so forth, but I'll stop for now. Yeah, so a Andrea's list of eight questions does a wonderful job teeing up this panel and, you know, we'll really start to explore all of these off-ramps as we go through and everything that really has to be shown in the instant cases. So let's start a bit simpler. Um, the current dispute arises from the 14th Amendment, and it's an incredibly complicated issue. Um, we, you know, have all these different elements, but there are a bunch of other possible reasons that an individual may be ineligible to serve as president. You need to be at least 35 years old. You need to be a natural born citizen. Um, what is the traditional mechanism by which states or individuals enforce electoral qualifications and what makes this different? So, um, Derek, you already mentioned that many states do not have any such mechanism. So let's start with you. Sure. Um, so one advantage about this is I've been writing about this for a decade. Uh, so I thought about this, again, well before uh, President Trump, although influenced by him as he was leading the charge for uh, excluding candidates like Barack Obama for not being a natural-born citizen, for suggesting Ted Cruz shouldn't appear on the ballot, for being born in Canada, things like that. Um, but we've seen these mechanisms play out for a very long time over decades. Uh, that is, states decide the manner of appointing presidential electors. And that is a popular election right now in all the states. They print the names of the presidential and vice presidential candidates on the ballot. Uh, most states, they don't list the presidential electors, just the names of the candidates. 
Uh, they present them to the voters, the voters cast their votes, and whoever gets the most votes uh, gets that electoral slate. And um, for a long time, the states, well, first off, they didn't print the ballot. Those were left to the, the, the parties to print the ballot in the mid-19th, late-19th century. So they would decide to put Grant's name at the top of the ballot, Greeley's name, whoever is going to be on the ballot. And then the state starts taking over the printing of the ballot and it has to make some hard decisions about who to include and who to exclude um, in the late 19th century. And so it creates mechanisms where you seek signatures from voters to say there's enough popular support for your name to appear on the ballot. Um, and then by the late 20th century, particularly this sort of a moment in the 50s and 60s where um, whether it's the rise of sort of hard left parties, of communist and so, sort of socialist parties in the United States, and there's a real resistance to listing their names in the ballot, um, there begins to be some interest in the states about excluding candidates, raising the threshold for allowing candidates to appear on the ballot to get into the general election. And then part and parcel of this is also excluding ineligible candidates from the ballot. And the first instance I found is in 1968, where Eldridge Cleaver is 33 years old, attempts to appear on the ballot, and the state of California says, you're 33. We're not putting your name on the ballot. Uh, and he appeals that to the United States Supreme Court, summarily rejected, not a merits decision, but we've got at least some record of that. And over the years, we've seen this happen. Different states have different mechanisms where candidates who are ineligible are kept off. You're 21 years old. You're born in Nicaragua, whatever it might be. But on the flip side, a lot of states have no such mechanism. And Ineligible candidates show up on the ballot, 20, or 37 or 33-year-olds, 31-year-olds, Nicaraguan nationals. They appear on the ballot. They've appeared on the ballot a lot in Minnesota, actually. And candidates, uh, you vote for them. You could vote for them. Maybe you don't want to vote for them or don't even know who their names are because they're not the major party candidates. So um, there's a spotty history because the states choose these mechanisms and how they want to apply. Um, and so we've seen this throughout the states in, in other contexts with the major party candidates. Again, Barack Obama, John McCain, Ted Cruz, challenges to their eligibility. And the states, again, split in terms of even whether or not they're going to investigate. In some states, they say, yeah, we're going to hold a hearing, and we're going to figure out whether or not you're eligible, and we'll figure out what the natural-born citizen clause of the Constitution means. And in other states, they say, we've got no mechanism here. And unless it's either really obvious or unless the legislature gives us guidance, your name's going on the ballot. So we see this divide playing out consistently throughout the states and why it's such a piecemeal and fractured process. And if I can underscore what Derek said, it's really important. This is as much an Article II issue as it's a 14th Amendment Section 3 issue. And the whole discussion about whether or not Section 3 is self-executing or needs enabling legislation needs to encompass the question whether state legislation can be enabling legislation under the Article II power that Derek mentioned, the state legislatures have the power to enact laws to um, choose the manner of appointing presidential electors. And, and even Professor Blackman, in his lengthy new article on page 111 or 12 or something, uh, talks about the Chiafalo case in the US Supreme Court, which is a case about the Electoral College that gives the US Supreme Court the power to, to basically um, uh, or says that state legislatures have the power to enact statutes that will nullify the appointment of an elector if they're faithless electors. Remember the faithless elector concept. And you can replace a faithless elector with an elector who will be faithful. Well, that's very, very important power for state legislatures. So we really need to be asking the questions, do state legislatures have the power to enact a statute? They may not have enacted it or they may in some states, to say, we're not going to let our appointed presidential electors 
vote for someone who's not eligible to serve as president, and here's our method for figuring out whether they're eligible or not. Just want to quickly add to that. Um, the, the plaintiffs are trying to make two arguments, I think, as regards to the state's enforcement power. And one is that under certain state laws, so Professor Mueller gave us a sense that these vary enormously. There are some states, um, Oregon is one of them, under which it seems that at least the plaintiffs want to convince um, courts that state officials have no discretion about whether to put Trump on the ballot or not. This is to say, um, if uh, former President Trump is ineligible, the state official must refuse to put him on the ballot. And the other argument that they're seeking to make is that this is a disqualification. This, this is a criterion for office just like any other, just as if he were 33 years old and hadn't lived in the United States for 14 years. This is a sort of garden variety, nothing to see here, your folks kind of argument. And so let me just cite the, the Oregon law um, uh, speaking to this. Um, the Oregon law says that if the, if the Secretary of State determines that a candidate has died, withdrawn, or become disqualified, the name of the candidate may not be printed on the ballots or if ballots have already been printed, the ballots must be reprinted without the name of the candidate. So this is one of the sorts of laws that's being used. The idea is to say this isn't a discretionary matter by the state officials. This is an obligation under state law. And I think the question then really arises, uh, as Professor Foley was saying, whether such a state law can actually trigger the provisions of Section 3. Great. So, uh, Professor Foley, uh, you've already started to you know, hint at this. and. Professor Katz's comments are also getting at this, but can you help us like disentangle um, the two avenues this could come about, right? So what we're seeing is right now we're talking a lot about litigation, but there's this whole separate thing happening here with election administrators, right? In terms of um, secretaries of state being asked to remove people um, from the ballot with their own authority. And how do election administrators and courts interact in this regard, and how does that affect this, you know, question? Oh, oh <laughs> such an easy question. <laughs> I'm you glad know. to tee up something so easy. Yeah. Now to take up Derek's cue, it really varies state to state, um, because it, it's going to be state law that's going to determine the interplay between the state administrative officials. By the way, it could be local officials or state level officials. Um, Different states structure their whole um, election administration process very differently. Some are quite decentralized, like Wisconsin comes to mind. Um, others are more centralized. Uh, and, and so uh, you could have county level officials having to make a decision if somebody's going to be uh, on the ballot or not. Um, I also think it's important to distinguish between the role of primary elections, that's where we are now at this stage of the process, versus the November general election. Again, most of us think when we vote in a primary, we're really voting for somebody, and if they get enough votes, they win, win the primary. And that's true if it's a gubernatorial primary or most primaries. But the way presidential primaries feed into the party conventions is a very distinctive process. Um, you know, party, now the parties have their own rules for how delegates are pledged, depending upon these primary uh, elections, or sometimes caucuses. There's still a few states that have <laughs> caucuses. And, and so um, 
and this comes back to the timing point that the, the, the posture of all of this litigation in my mind is very different if it's pre-nomination or post-nomination. So um, I think as a practical matter, we're starting to see that election administrators are unlikely or have so far pervasively not wanted to take their own initiative to disqualify even in so-called blue states. You might have thought politically, well, some blue state secretary of state's eager to do this. That is not appeared to be the case. And so, um, you know, if this is going to get teed up to the US Supreme Court for a ruling that applies nationwide, I think the, the way it would have to happen is that some uh, state judicial system approved by the state Supreme Court would have to render a disqualification judgment that would obligate the US Supreme Court to, to review it, or, or some uh, significant um, uh, a judgment that's on the road to disqualification. Maybe here in Minnesota, you could have a ruling on a legal issue, but without all of the facts determined that could tee it up to the to the Supreme Court. Um, so yeah, there's so much complexity involved. Um, I don't know that I can say anything more than that. <laughs> yeah, if I could jump in. So there's a there's another kind of argument that's that's risen. Um, by the plaintiffs in some of these cases that um, I don't think is right. And so I want to, I if I can jump in on this point, you know, the state legislature makes the decision about whether or not the Secretary of State has this authority to review qualifications. And again, in, in the states that empower uh, somebody to make that determination, it's typically a court or administrative law judge. So in states like Georgia or New Jersey, where the Secretary of State might have this power, it's typically referred over to an administrative law judge to make the decision. There's a separate question suggesting, well, maybe the Secretary of State has this inherent authority. They've taken an oath to uphold the Constitution of the United States, and that means you need to dig in and figure out what, whether or not somebody's qualified to serve. Um, and I've seen this argument floated out there in some of the pleadings. Um, and in the pre-2020 cases, I found this basically go nowhere except in one place, Chief Justice Roy Moore in Alabama, who <laughs> dissented in a case in 2014 where the state of Alabama, the majority of the Supreme Court basically said there's no power for the Secretary of State to go ask for Barack Obama's birth certificate. And just Chief Justice Roy Moore dissented says there's an oath you've taken to uphold the Constitution of the United States and there's a supremacy clause that says supreme to everything else in the United States and that Secretary of State needs to get in there and figure out whether or not every single presidential candidate is qualified. You can understand why that's not a great place for secretaries of state to be, right? Unless there's a mechanism put in place well before the election by the legislature to figure out what this looks like, whether or not to investigate, and what the conditions and parameters of that should look like. We don't want secretaries of state ferreting around on their own, independent of any other authority, because frankly, it's Article 2. It puts it in the state legislatures to make this decision, and it's not for anyone else to just go root around on their own. There's this case, Moore versus Harper, um, involving the power of state legislatures to write uh, election laws. That was in an Article I context, but there was a caveat at the end of the Supreme Court's opinion that said if some state institution um, deviates too far from the state statutory scheme, that could still raise a federal constitutional question. And so for, were a Secretary of State without any legislative authority to say, I'm going to disqualify this candidate just because I've taken an oath to the U.S. Constitution, I think that would raise a serious more versus Harper problem.
Yeah, I think Professor Miller makes a good prudential argument that do we want this mechanism in place where secretaries of state are empowered to ferret around? Was a good word. Um, it, you know, it, it, I, I think. Um, I think, again, the plaintiffs want to convince us that just as a 25-year-old can't run for president, this is the exact same thing. Uh, I just, I don't have a ton to add to the, the, the patchwork uh, landscape that Professors Foley and Muller have described, but I wanted to, to just uh, uh, briefly mention one case that uh, adds an interesting wrinkle. Um, this is Hassan versus Colorado. It's a 2012 case that came out of the Tenth Circuit when now um, uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch was writing on the Tenth Circuit. In that case, Hassan um, upheld a decision by the Colorado Secretary of State that barred a naturalized citizen, um, Abdul Hassan, who'd been born abroad, from running for president. Obviously, most of us haven't heard of him, so I guess his campaign didn't get very far. Um, but, um, his, but Hassan's claim is interesting here because he claimed that even if Article Two did properly make him ineligible to hold the office of the presidency, it was still illegal for Colorado to exclude him from the ballot, uh, to deny him a place on the ballot. And I think um, um, it, it, his argument, again, is just to be clear, he, he should still be able to run even if he can't win, right? Um, the Tenth Circuit rejects this claim and upholds Colorado's um, decision to exclude him from the ballot. And in particular, um, Neil Gorsuch wrote, uh, a state's legitimate interest in protecting the integrity and practical functioning of the political process permits it to exclude from the ballot candidates who are constitutionally prohibited from assuming office. So there's been an argument made um, that um, former President Trump couldn't be excluded from the ballot from a primary election. I think there's a question whether the reasoning of Hassan would be compelling here um, and uh, entitle secretaries of state to exclude Trump at this early stage. Again, the question though is, candidates who are constitutionally prohibited from assuming office. It's very easy to say when somebody's 25 years old or was born abroad, it's a lot harder to say when we're talking about invoking the definitions of section three. So I wanna ask one last justiciability question before we get into the merits of all of this and what happens after the Minnesota Supreme Court hears this first case. Um, so there've already, it seems, that election administrators are not probably going to use their own power to disqualify President Trump. There have already been a number of lawsuits already filed uh, seeking to exclude President Trump from the ballot. Um, I think Alan quoted two dozen states as of this morning. Um, so Professor Mueller, you've written on Election Law Blog, which I'll plug as an unaffiliated person is like, if you want to follow this issue, great place to follow that. Uh, both Professor Muller and Professor Foley write on election law blog. Um, so Professor Muller, do plaintiffs have standing in these cases? Yeah, I should disclose here, I did file an amicus brief in the Minnesota Supreme Court in support of neither party, so I hope that doesn't uh, color anything. It's in support of neither party, so maybe I'm just uh, mm -hmm. right in the middle of it all anyway. So I think you'll see most of these cases are gonna go nowhere. Um, and they're already getting thrown out in federal court. Because when you're filing in federal court, you have to have Article Three standing, which is checking a lot of boxes to establish that you have an injury that a court can redress. And when you are a voter going into court saying, oh, this candidate's not qualified to serve, keep him off the ballot, what's called a generalized grievance, you have an injury just like everybody else, and the Supreme Court says, unless you have something particularized to you, 
we're not going to get involved. So a lot of these cases that are filed in federal court have, have been getting thrown out and will be thrown out. Um, that's in contrast to a lot of states that have what we describe as elector standing. So state courts are not the same as federal courts. State courts will often empower individual electors or voters to come challenge candidate qualifications. And this happens because uh, you know, the Secretary of State accepts gobs of paperwork from uh, folks around the state who are running for office. And they just sort of check the box and make sure the paperwork is complete and move on because they're very busy people. <laughs> but there's a mechanism here to say, you know, well, you need 100 signatures. OK, we as the Secretary of State are making sure you've got 100. But what if we say 100 signatures from registered voters? And we get in there and say, actually, only 97 of these are registered voters, and three of them aren't registered voters, or three of them are fraudulent, or three of them signed outside the district. A lot of times, states have mechanisms to let individual voters go in and challenge the petitions and allow you to challenge the eligibility of that person to serve. Or for state office to say, you know, we have a state rule that requires you to live in the district for a year or be a registered voter for three years before running for office. So again, states have these mechanisms, essentially, um, you know, sometimes pejoratively described roving citizen commissions to sort of go around and make sure that these laws are complied with. And again, going to the judiciary, the process where we expect sort of this fact-finding to take place, and then allowing for an adjudication and resolution about whether or not the candidate should appear on the ballot. It's just that it's less uh, ordinary to see this happen in presidential elections and less ordinary to see it happen when it comes to substantive qualifications, you know, 35 years old, natural born citizen, as opposed to did you turn in 100 signatures from registered voters around the state. Um, so we will see in these states, states like Colorado and uh, Minnesota and Michigan, where I think some of the earliest, most likely challenges that will get to the merits and not get thrown out you know, at the very beginning are because these states have these mechanisms in place to allow any voter to show up to sue and to enforce these regulations. So let's assume that a court decides it has jurisdiction to hear this case and that a plaintiff has standing. The court will ultimately need to reach the merits. And last panel, we talked about the history of the elements of Section 3. But today, the court will need to apply them to President Trump's conduct. And plaintiffs will need to prove that President Trump engaged in insurrection or rebellion. So do President Trump's actions meet this threshold? And we'll start with Professor Katz. How much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> OK, well, I, I, I jotted down some notes. And I'll try to get through my notes in a somewhat parsimonious fashion. But I think this is the biggest legal question at issue. And therefore, a lot can and must be said about it um, by people in more influential positions than myself. But here are some thoughts. Um, were the events of January 6th an insurrection? What's an insurrection? What definition of it shall we use? Um, there's at least three important sources of law to look at in defining an insurrection. I don't claim that to be an exhaustive list, uh, but these are ones that came to me. Uh, one is the common law of insurrection or the Blackstonian uh, definition, as Professor Graver put it on the last panel. The other would be federal statutes. Um, and then also, separately, the question of what the three branches of government have said on the matter as to what constitutes an insurrection. So as to the common law, this was discussed on the last panel again. Um, and again, Professor Graber has meticulously reconstructed this understanding of the term insurrection in his new book, 
punish treason, reward loyalty. Um, but um, essentially the argument for why we should be looking here is that the 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868, drafted in 1866. It is plausible that the drafters of the 14th Amendment had in mind something like the Blackstonian um, definition of insurrection when they wrote this term into the 14th Amendment. And so um, again, um, that definition contains four elements. An insurrection is one, an assemblage of persons, that means two or more people. Two, acting to prevent the execution of one or more federal laws. Three, for a public purpose. And four, through the use of violence, force, or intimidation by numbers. So again, um, a public purpose is important here. If you're um, a ring of whiskey distillers during the Prohibition era, uh, that's not an insurrection because you're just trying to make money. Uh, the public purpose is lacking. However, by the same token, um, many of the January 6th rioters gave a defense in the form of, well, I genuinely believed the election was stolen. Um, under this standard, that's not a defense. Um, the fact that participants firmly believe uh, that they were acting for the good of their country is not a defense to insurrection, but is actually proof that they were acting for an insurrectionary public purpose. So the 19th century definition is gonna scoop up uh, this activity, I think, pretty neatly. Current federal law, however, sets a higher bar. Um, it actually requires violence, or at least it's been interpreted by some courts to actually require violence. And especially, here's the sticking point, intent. Um, you have to prove that a defendant knowingly incited, engaged in, or gave, gave aid and comfort to an insurrection, so underline the word knowingly, um, that the rebellion was against the authority of the United States or its laws, and that the defendant's actions were willful and intentional, underline those words too. So um, Josh Blackman noted on the prior panel that none of the January 6th rioters have been charged with a federal crime of insurrection, and there's been about a 1,000 charges, uh, my last count. Um, the federal case against uh, President Trump, led by Jack Smith, doesn't charge him with insurrection either. Uh, why not? Again, the idea that intent could be a sticking point, right? Many of the people who attended the rally um, did not commit actions that were organized or coordinated. Um, so they clearly did not have the right intent to commit insurrection. Um, and most of these rioters have been charged with very minor federal crimes like property damage or trespassing. However, um, I'll just make this point before I, I go on too long. Um, it's not, uh, for those who say that Section 3 doesn't apply to Trump simply because federal criminal law establishes a higher bar, um, there's a couple points to be made on the other side. Um, and I think one of the most important ones is that the history of the 14th Amendment suggests that its drafters did not see it as punishment, uh, but rather a requirement of office. Um, so you don't need to prove the elements of the criminal act or beyond the reasonable standard of a doubt either, right? Um, so again, this is from Professor Bra uh, Graber's book. But um, one of the drafters, Senator John Henderson of Missouri, described the 14th Amendment as, this is an act fixing the qualifications of officers and not an act for the punishment of crime. 
So the mere fact that prosecutors did not charge President Trump with insurrection because of the high evidentiary bar to proving intent does not necessarily mean that for the purposes of the 14th Amendment, what we saw was not an insurrection and what we saw the president do, including in the events leading up to January 6th, the phone call with Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, the plans to install fake electors, et cetera, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that from a civil standard that wouldn't rise to the level of engaging an insurrection. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I wanna tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent 
potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Nick, I'm sorry. Can I just jump back to you, you? Your last question was about standing, which was an important threshold issue, and I thought Derek handled it perfectly, so I didn't want to add anything there. And then you said, well, let's turn to the merits, and then we got into important discussion about insurrection. In between those two is this issue of can only Congress enforce this law? And that could be viewed as either a jurisdictional issue or a merits issue, depending upon how you think about it. It's not a traditional justiciability issue, like does a plaintiff have standing? Is the case ripe? Is the case moot? So it's, it's, it's about interpreting the relevant law, so it sounds more meritsy. On the other hand, it's an off-ramp in the specific sense that it, if, if the US Supreme Court were to say, um, so, Anyway, maybe it'd be easier if I tee this up by saying, suppose a, a, the Minnesota Supreme Court disqualifies Trump or the Colorado Supreme Court disqualifies Trump, and that goes up to the US Supreme Court. They grant certiorari, and they take the merits, as it were. Um, they could reverse and remand without actually weighing in, yes or no, Trump is disqualified. They could say that our understanding of the 14th Amendment is that without this enabling statute, no other institution in government can opine on this issue and therefore it vacates the disqualification order below. below. And so that could be thought of as a kind of merits ruling. But, it, but from my perspective, it would be a merits ruling that leaves open the possibility of Congress after the fact on January 6, 2025, saying, well, the Supreme Court didn't decide it one way or the other, said Congress has to be the one to initiate anything. Well, we didn't initiate it for, but we'll do it now on January 6. So, so that kind of merits ruling I put in a very different category. But I think it's really important for us to spend some time thinking about it, because if we're trying to imagine what is likely to happen, or you know, how will the justices at the U.S. Supreme Court think about this? I can imagine them to be very, very tempted about not weighing in all of the points that Andrea just mentioned about how do we understand insurrection? Uh, do we use a 19th century frame or a modern frame? Um, and then the, the deep, difficult issues of, of was President Trump's conduct in any way early, during, or after 
you know, associated enough to make him engaged in or aid in comfort, what does that mean? And they can cut all of that off at the past by saying, well, nobody can get into that except academics on panels like this <laughs> if Congress hasn't enacted enabling statute. I think that would be terrible if the US Supreme Court takes that route uh, for two reasons. One is I think it's actually wrong on the merits that a honest account of the relevant legal materials here does mean, certainly Congress has preemptive authority. Were a federal statute to exist of this nature, it would be supreme under the supremacy clause and would preempt any state law to the contrary into any procedural details. I don't think there's any uh, dispute about that. But I don't think Congress has exclusive legislative authority by virtue of the Article II um, state legislature in connection to appointing electors. That, so, so state legislation could exist without going first to Congress, Congress, may we, may we enforce it ourselves? And I think without going into the details, you could look at 19th century analogs of, of why um, the authors of the 14th Amendment would have thought it would be appropriate for state legislatures to exercise Article II power before Congress exercised Section 3 of the 14th, 14th Amendment power. But the second reason why I, I think it would be a mistake if the court used that off-ramp is because of the, the fraught perils that it would lead to in leaving open the issue for present potential congressional resolution in 2025. And on this point, I just want to quote one sentence from oral argument in that Chiafalo case that I mentioned, the faceless elector case, because we spent a lot of time already this morning talking about originalism. And you know the, court, the current court undoubtedly uh, is, a, is originalist in thinking. But there was a really interesting tell from Justice Kavanaugh in, in the Chiafalo case. And they took that case before the 2016 election, worried that the faithless elector issue would cause incredible confusion if you had faithless electors, as people were contemplating. And so Justice Kavanaugh starts out, and he goes, good morning, Mr. Lessig. The, um, Larry Lessig, the Harvard Law professor, was arguing the case. He goes, I want to follow up on Justice Alito's line of questioning and what I might call the quote, well, he didn't use quote, but I think you could, there were kind of air quotes to his question. He says, what I might call the avoid chaos principle of judging, which suggests that if it's a close call or a tiebreaker, that we shouldn't facilitate or create chaos. And you can imagine the justices immediately thinking, this is going to be chaotic if we let this happen, and so let's cut it off at the pass under this exclusive congressional authority. But what I want to suggest is maybe the avoid chaos principle cuts the other way, that it's an imperative for the court, again, to weigh in on the legal issues here so that we don't have chaos at the back end of the process. Professor Mueller, do you have anything to add uh, before I? Yeah, I'll say I don't know. Um, <laughs> so I say that. You know, when I, when I did all this stuff with, you know, the past, the 2016 election and Ted Cruz, and people would say, well, you know, he's born in Canada to a Cuban father and an American mother. Is he a natural-born citizen? And I would say, I don't know. I'm not a natural-born citizen clause expert. I can tell you about all the other election stuff, but uh, on that, I don't know. Uh, same with Section 3. There are, the, the past panel uh, has forgotten more than I'll ever know about Section 3. Uh, I can describe all these things, but I feel a high degree of uncertainty, and I don't know if that goes to the chaos principle. Um, but, but I will add one sort of additional congressional point, and this is actually the last sentence, um, which we haven't spent a lot of time talking about here in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, is that Congress, by a two-thirds vote, can lift the disability. 
And this is, that's a strange provision when it comes to a qualification, right? Um, usually we think qualifications are black and white, you know, 35 years old, 14 years resident, natural born citizen. It's very weird to think that there's a qualification that's an on-off switch left to the legislature. And in this case, right, if you are saying today a candidate is not qualified, he could be qualified in a few months or in a year if Congress acts and makes him qualified. And that just kind of changes the dynamics of the factual universe you're looking at. And again, to this notion that Congress, one is the, the question of self-execution, but another is a question of the ability to lift the disability and whether or not that sort of weighs into how courts sort of view this or treat this going forward as something inappropriate for them. I don't know, I don't have a great answer for it except to sort of flag it. Can I just say one more thing? Please do. I think that uh, that intervention is massively important because I could see it, it's a sort of merits ruling, but it's also it's kind of more a procedural ruling that this point about whether Congress has to speak first before a state can take action to exclude, I think that is likely to be of huge practical uh, importance. I just wanted to say one more thing about the merits as to the, the definition of an insurrection and engaging in insurrection because I left that out. And this has to do with a free speech question, which is so massively important. So one argument... Um, uh, against uh, applying the term engage to President Trump's actions is that uh, it hangs on his speech uh, from January 6th and that we do not, and this current court would certainly not establish a precedent where speech giving is tantamount to uh, aiding an insurrection, right? What I would say that I think is, is on point here, um, none of the January 6th rioters have been charged with a federal crime of insurrection, but about a dozen have been charged with a federal crime of seditious conspiracy, which is a similar crime. Um, it relates to a conspiracy to overthrow the United States government and does not require carrying out uh, violence. It refers more, again, to a conspiracy, a sort of coordinated planned action. Um, and so there's been about a handful of the January 6th rioters who have been convicted of this charge of seditious conspiracy. Those were um, tended to be higher ups in these organizations like the Oath Keepers or the Proud Boys, so the founder of a group like that. And what was important for the, for the prosecutors, this is why I mention it because I think it pertains to, to President Trump's actions and how, how they, they bear on, on, on this question, um, coordinating, rallying followers, driving people to the event, these were all things that prosecutors drew on in proving the charge of seditious conspiracy. So I think there's a question about whether Trump's relevant actions here were merely the speech or the prior activities involved in sort of uh, trying to, to build up support for his version of events. I want to ask a follow-up question that... that all three of you have started to somewhat prompt here, which is there's this question of, you know, is this provision self-executing? Does Congress need to pass enabling legislation? We have this uh, ability of Congress to remove the disability. So to some degree, setting aside the current political situation, Congress has the ability to remove off-ramps from the Supreme Court. Should it do so, and what off-ramps would be best for Congress to remove? Well, Congress should have adopted an enabling statute a couple of years ago to settle this. Um, I wrote a column in the Washington Post urging that. Um, obviously, that didn't happen. Um, and I do think we can't understand, and this may come up in the next panel, but I don't think we can't 
can't, I don't think we can understand the situation that we're in right now without acknowledging that this issue arose in a way during the trial of Trump's second impeachment charge, right? The second impeachment was about Trump's uh, culpability for the January 6th event, and it was called an insurrection, I think, as part of the second impeachment. And the House impeached, and the Senate, uh, 57 senators voted to convict, but that was not 67 as required. As, as you may remember, an argument was made, a procedural argument, um, uh, that the Senate was disempowered from conducting the criminal trial, or not the, the impeachment trial, uh, because it, by the time it had gotten to that point, Trump had already left office. And so there was this issue about whether or not, even though he was impeached before leaving office, the, it, it mooted it out. Um, and a number of Republican senators took that jurisdictional uh, off-ramp, if you can use that term in that context, but others others didn't. And, and the reason why that's important is both Trump is arguing in Minnesota right now that that's a race judicata kind of effect, that, there, that he was actually acquitted for culpability for January 6th, and that acquittal verdict carries over into the uh, interpretation under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. I think that's incorrect, but as a practical matter, we're stuck with having to think about Section 3 of the 14th Amendment because had Trump been convicted, uh, disqualification can come, uh, the Senate needs to take another vote, but it had, they, had 67 senators voted to convict, they would have voted to disqualify, um, and that would have been the end of, of the matter. Um, the reason why this is so precarious from my perspective is that the, you know, if this does come back on January 6, uh, 2025, it only takes a majority vote of each house uh, to object to electoral votes on the grounds that they were not regularly given. And the, the argument that would be made is an electoral vote is not regularly given if it's given for a candidate who can't receive it, who's disqualified. And so it, it, just as a political matter, it's quite possible that the Democrats will be back in power as the majority party in the House after the 2024 elections. Um, and I think there are Democrats in Congress, including Representative Raskin, who would lead the effort to try to disqualify Trump at that point, saying he was already, in fact, he's made public statements on CNN to this effect. So you, know, you could see the House by majority vote voting to disqualify. The Senate is more politically fraught at the moment of which party is going to control it based on the 24 uh, races that are up, but we already have some Republican senators like Senators Murkowski and Collins who have voted to convict Trump for culpability for the insurrection. So it's not inconceivable to think that notwithstanding the failure of the impeachment conviction, that there would be majority votes in both houses of Congress to disqualify on January 6, 2025, and think that Congress was entitled to do that if the U.S. Supreme Court hadn't answered it uh, previously. So, you know, again, I, I, maybe I'm obsessed with this, but I, I sort of, and the, and the question is whether or not the litigation right now is going to take this into account or not, or whether we're going to kind of stumble down a path in which this issue gets avoided now, but that really comes back to bite us later. Yeah, just to 
and to briefly restate or summarize, there, I mean, there's lots of different things that Congress can do here in different domains. And this, may, it adds a lot of complexity beyond just self-executing, right? The, must Congress implement legislation? There's a different one, which you know, Professor Foley's written about extensively, saying Congress ought to have done so, which is a sort of second separate inquiry. There's the impeachment layer and the failure to convict and the failure to disqualify following the conviction. So that is that layer. And again, the, the chamber is acting separately. There's the counting of electoral votes that comes on January 6, 2025, with its own peril and questions of what the 12th Amendment permits and what the Electoral Count Act permits. There's the ability to lift the disability here under that second sentence of Section 3. Um, and then there's this weird 20th Amendment issue, which we haven't talked about, and I want to get to into right? But Section 3 of the 20th Amendment talks about, well, what happens if a president fails to qualify, and there's that word again, um, you know, by January 20th, uh, when you're supposed to take office and there's supposed to be an acting vice president, how much does Congress play a role in determining whether or not a president has qualified as of January 20th, and how much might the judiciary be involved? So there's lots of places for the Congress to be involved. I mean, I guess the short answer is we should expect Congress not to be involved. Um, but there are lots of places where it could be involved at various points in this process. Nothing to add. Congress could clear up a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So this case, you know, comes about about a year before the November election, general election, right? The Iowa primaries are less than three months away. Uh, they are caucuses as a former Iowa resident. Caucuses in the state of Iowa. <laughs> <laughs> They will be revoking my political science <laughs> doctorate after this. You may proceed to the sub-plaza to watch the ceremony. Uh, so the general election is about a year away. Um, Professor Foley, how does the short election timeline factor into deciding these cases? It's, it's, it's why it would have been good for Congress to write that statute. <laughs> back um, yeah, I, you sort of... I, I've tried to think a little bit about the timetable and how fast this could get to the U.S. Supreme Court under the so-called shadow docket that you may know that term where they, um, you know, emergency motions for stays of injunctions or to lift a injunction, those kinds of things. So as the last panel said, this could get to the U.S. Supreme Court in some way, shape, or form relatively quickly. But, in the po but it, does it get to the U.S. Supreme Court in the posture that causes the U.S. Supreme Court to give us the kind of definitive ruling one way or the other that I think we need. Um, so I think, I think anything that gets to the U.S. Supreme Court December, January, trying to beat the deadline of the caucuses and the primaries is unlikely to be really satisfactory. I think that it's, that's, it feels to me more like the court would say, we're, we're not ready for this, would look for a procedural off-ramp. I suppose there is a chance that they could cut this all off at the pass by saying the president is not an officer within, you know, Professor Blackman, you know, that, that would be a merits ruling that would be the cleanest because then it doesn't have to answer what's an insurrection or, or what does it mean to engage. And, and so presidents aren't officers under this provision, you know, end of story. But I don't really predict that that's what the U.S. Supreme Court's going to do. So I'm, I am thinking even if it bounces up to the Supreme Court December, January, 
I, I feel like more likely, if we are going to get a merits ruling, it would be more like April, May, and this is, gets tricky with the schedule because I, voters will have started voting, whether in the caucus or New Hampshire, and then Super Tuesday in March, and so there will be all these primary votes coming in and likely to be in favor of President Trump when the Republican primary, if the polls are any indication. And so the longer it takes, the more there is this kind of reliance, interest, expectation, how are you going to take this away from you know, us when we voted for him kind of thing. And, and, and then what I don't know is whether or not the court will think, well, that's true, except voting for, for in a primary isn't the same thing as voting in the general election. And you know, if, tragically, a presidential candidate were to have a stroke or become incapacitated um, after a lot of primary votes, but before the convention, political parties have mechanisms at their convention to say, well, we can't nominate the person who won all these primary votes because they've had a stroke and we need to nominate somebody else. And so the reliance interests in the context of the primary campaign, again, is quite different in my mind than, than after the November general election. So we, we do have, the, we have these two things happening on parallel, or, or well, not parallel, they will intersect at some point, <laughs> but exactly where the legal track on the Section 3 issue and the political track of voters voting, whether that intersects, I can't really predict whether it's going to be, you know, December, January, May, June, and I'd love to hear other thoughts on this. The first question was about how, how steep and uphill the plaintiffs have, but I, I would sort of flip it also to uh, candidate Trump's uh, uh, predicament situation. If I understand it right, enforcement could plausibly, we don't have consensus on this, come either from Congress or from the states. And if it comes from the states, it could from, come from a state law clarifying uh, how they're going to implement this definition of insurrection for the purposes of their election or their electors could come from a state law. It could come from a state secretary of state, a state executive official, right, deciding that the terms of, a, of Section 3 are self-executing and require them to exclude somebody, sort of like the Oregon law that I was mentioning. And it could also come from a court, right, as, as is, you know, this is, this is the challenge that's, that's in the Minnesota Supreme Court right now. Um, if any one of these branches in any of the 50 states, but specifically a, a, a battleground state, a purple state, did do this, um, it might be supposed that that would be a big challenge for uh, candidate Trump's uh, prospects. Losing one battleground state um, could prove uh, extremely difficult. So I think then you would have a question about uh, what the response of the Republican um, Party convention would be. And I don't, I don't even want to speculate on that, but I just want to say that the, the complexity from the electoral map point of view um, actually, it, I mean, should be deeply worrying, I think, from the Trump campaign, because any one of these branches in the 50 states could presumably trigger this. I think that Secretary Simon here in Minnesota said I think his drop-dead deadline is something like January 5th to print the ballots uh, for the primary. You'll see similar statements from other secretaries of state offering guidance to the court. Um, and again, because even in a March primary, it takes a while to make sure you've got all the typefaces lined up and that, the, that, the, the, that you've got enough space on the ballot for all your offices, the things that are distributed across the counties and then getting it to the printers, and then getting it back, and then turning around to mail things out for early absentee balloting. So 
there's this process at the back end that, that pushes the deadline in a lot of respects. And so we're seeing that play out right now, again, maybe a little earlier than I would have thought a year ago. And in, in part, it's because the statutes are not really built for this. <laughs> again, this gets to my point, like raising it earlier about these qualifications disputes. You know, the statutes are really built for, you, you need 100 signatures, and three of them are not residents of the state. Uh, or even when it comes to state qualifications, you know, have you been in a resident of this home for a year? Let's go look at where your water bill is and where your driver's license is. These are things that are designed to take a couple hours in a hearing uh, on a very short notice when a voter files the challenge. Um, they are not designed, what we're seeing in Colorado right now, they're not designed for five-day hearings. <laughs> they are not designed for, as we're seeing in the Minnesota Supreme Court, um, a day, I mean, it's, it's an hour and a half, but a day of several complicated legal issues, followed by perhaps a referral to a special master to develop facts for later adjudication. So the levels of complexity are just not built for this process, which creates some of the time issues. Now, frankly, what we're going to see, though, is regardless of the process, in around January 15th, the Iowa caucuses will be held. Not a state-run affair, run by the party. Donald Trump will win those caucuses. Um, and then sort of the rest of the primaries will start coming out. So you're already going to have some tension within the primary process as some of these states are trying to determine ballot access issues, while in other places they're just running because the parties are privately running them where there's no mechanism to keep them off the ballot or whatever it looks like. So real challenge is thinking about the timeline in the next few months. So we're nearing the end of our panel, and I want to invite people to um, queue in the middle row for questions. But while people get ready to ask their own questions, I want to ask Professor Katz a particular question, which is about you know, the comparison of this in Latin America. So Latin American courts often shape electoral outcomes in presidential elections. Um, in Brazil, the top electoral court forbade former President Bolsonaro from running for eight years for abusing his authority while in office. Guatemalan courts this summer faced criticism for excluding presidential candidates from a top party. Um, Given your research on Latin America, what lessons can we draw from Latin America about the role of courts in managing presidential elections? Um, one of the reasons, so I work on presidential power, and one of the reasons that I work on comparative law is for the exact reason that Professor Mueller just said. Uh, I think in the US, a lot of these laws aren't built for this. Um, and so what would it look like if we look at a system where party bans or candidate bans are built for this, right? So Latin America is, no shocker, a region that has seen a lot of extremes of uh, democratic backsliding, uh, a lot of democratically elected candidates that then refuse to leave office, sort of abusing the tools of the incumbency, you know, whether this was filing like fake tax audits on opposing politicians or stuffing ballot boxes, other forms of fraud, intimidating the press, things like this. Um, so Latin America definitely has seen its share of uh, democratically elected candidates then turning around and using the tools of the office in an undemocratic way. So what do you do with that? Um, super briefly, I, I would say that a lot of Latin America's systems uh, come from the post-World War II period, and they come from uh, Germany, the granddaddy of what's sometimes called militant democracy, how to ensure that democracy is not used by the enemies of democracy against your system. And so basically the system that Germany set up after the war, and which Latin America mostly copied, um, is that in their constitution, what's called the basic law, 
Uh, they specify that those who use democratic freedoms against the free democratic order can be excluded from running for office. And who does that? Their highest court. So you can imagine a sort of equivalent provision in the United States, something more broad than the language of the 14th Amendment. Somebody who you know, attempts against the constitutional order may be excluded by the US Supreme Court. That would be the sort of uh, analogous provision. However, um, this is not a power that's free from controversy, right? So in Latin America, you see both um, courts using it too freely, right? So you mentioned, so in Guatemala, uh, an anti-corruption reformer who was the front runner in their election was banned from office for irregularities with some of the, the, the ballot uh, signatures. And then the court changed its mind, allowed him to run, and he became elected the president. So for a brief moment, it looked like a crisis was brewing because courts were abusing this power to ban a candidate. The other problem that you see in Latin America is the opposite problem, which is courts being too weak to actually enforce this, right? So for instance, it's a slightly different case, but Hugo Chavez um, sort of, you know, rose to fame um, uh, participating in a military coup against a democratically elected president in the 90s. And he's sitting in a jail um, and a news team comes up to him and he says, well, we didn't succeed in our objectives of overthrowing the government for now. This for now makes him famous, launches his career, and thereafter it was uh, you know, impossible to enforce anything against him as, a, as somebody who, who, who tries to, to overturn the existing order. So um, basically the answer is other systems uh, explicitly make anti-democratic parties or candidates excludable from the process. They vest this power in courts and there's issues with that system. Please go ahead. Yeah, I, I, one of the off-ramps that you mentioned, but this panel hasn't discussed much, this the officer officer on-ramp, if you say the president's not an officer of the United States. The earlier panel had interesting discussion on both sides on what the Congress thought at the time they were writing the, the 14th Amendment. But obviously that phrase occurs elsewhere in the Constitution, so I'm just wondering if any of you thought about if the court took that off-ramp saying the president's not an officer, what kind of ramifications does that have outside of uh, you know, this particular part of the Constitution? Yeah, I, I mean, I defer to the first panel that has spent a lot more time on this issue than, than I have, but, but I, 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 I understand the attractiveness of this off-ramp because it's so clean as a narrow issue, but um, the person that comes to my mind in thinking about this issue is John Breckenridge, who I never learned about in high school or college, but um, he was the vice president of the United States uh, when Lincoln was elected, and, and Breckenridge actually was ran for president in the same election of 1860, got the second most electoral votes. He won the electoral votes of all the South that then seceded, and he was from Kentucky, but he joined the Confederacy and became eventually its Secretary of War. He was the youngest vice president in America at the time. And um, it was well understood that he was disqualified um, by Section 3. Uh, um, now, he had been, I think, a US senator. He had been a member of Congress, I think, senator. So he would have been disqualified anyway, but I think people understood at the time that, you know, had he not had he gotten to the role of being vice president um, without having served in Congress, that he was still within 
the the scope of the disqualification because he you know he joined the the, the rebellion. Um, it's not uh, inconceivable. He was a popular political figure. He came back. He had escaped to Canada. He comes back. Um, and there are people who want him to resurrect his political career. You know, the Democratic Party during Reconstruction is fighting Reconstruction, is trying to, there's the so-called Redeemer movement in the South. Um, he, die, he eventually dies, but, but, and he decides he's not going to run uh, for office again. They're asking, his friends are asking him to seek congressional uh, lifting of the disqualification, and he doesn't do it. But, but, but I would have thought that m most Americans um, would have understood that the disqualification applied to him. And again, he's a vice president, not a president, but he'd be running for the presidency again. I think he would have been disqualified from either being vice president or vice president again. So uh, it is an issue. It's a very technical, complicated issue. But it doesn't feel to me the one on which the case is ultimately going to turn. I, I think as um, uh, Professor Graber wrote elsewhere, um, should we give a lot of weight to a reading of Section 3 that, that, that says that the Republicans were, were uh, concerned about excluding an insurrectionist from being the county dog catcher, but not the President of the United States? Um, I think since the history speaks on this question, in my view, kind of with a whisper, um, it's uh, kind of irresponsible of us to uh, adopt that meaning. I'm just curious about this argument that Section 3 needs to be enabled by legislation of Congress. You've mentioned that the Supreme Court could use that route and say, oh, you know, Section 3 needs to be enabled by some legislation, so it hasn't been enabled, so it doesn't apply. Are there any other amendments or clauses in the Constitution that similarly need to be enabled by congressional legislation? It depends what you mean by enabled. Um, <laughs> Right, I mean, the, so the Constitution exists as sort of of its own force, and I think as uh, Professor Blackman mentioned on the first panel, right, there's a difference in if the state is using its authority against you and you're raising a defense, like the Fourth Amendment or the First Amendment, and there's a difference then from being able to affirmatively enforce those rights in court under Section 1983 and being able to go in with an enabling statute and a cause of action to be able to go and sue. Um, so the short answer is, uh, I don't know, no, but, yes, and, something like that, right? Where, where there's some enforcement that sort of happens of its own force and you're able to sort of invoke it, and other places where we sort of require some affirmative intervention from Congress to be able to do it. Um, and so I don't want to, you know, again, the last panel is probably the better place to talk about Griffin's case and what's happening there. And part of it is Chief Justice Chase is, like, sitting there like, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to figure out, like, who these judges are who have, like, I'm not ejecting them under a quo warranto action, you know, as we were talking about earlier. So I think part of it is the pragmatics about the posture in which the case arises to decide whether or not there's this enforcement legislation. Because I think to the extent that Congress thinks on, and again, I don't want to get us to January 6th, but to January 6th, 2025, I mean, Congress can make judgments on its own whether or not a, whether or not a candidate is qualified. And that's a way of it being enforced without enabling legislation. It's its own judgment call under that provision of the Constitution. Um, there would be different ways of thinking about Congress stepping in and saying, here are mechanics to figure out what an insurrectionist is. Here's the mechanics for figuring out disqualification. Um, and again, Professor Foley's written a lot more about this and might, and might have some more thoughts about how that plays out. Well, and also just to piggyback, I mean, both the House and the Senate uh, under uh, Article 1, Section 5 can refuse to seat an elected uh, candidate if they interpret the, 
the, the, the clause on their own to disqualify. So that's a, that you wouldn't have an act of Congress. You would just have each chamber of Congress. And on this point, I think another useful example to think about, um, I think it was Professor Blackman mentioned uh, this member of Congress from Ohio named Clement Vlandingham, who was uh, a prominent Democrat at the, during the Civil War and who was sympathetic to the South. Um, in addition to giving speeches for which he was jailed um, controversially, there was allegations that he was part of a pro-Confederate uh, conspiracy that actually did much more aiding and abetting than just give a speech. He, he was never prosecuted. There were some other co-conspirators prosecuted. He, he was not. But um, he, and he thought about after, during Reconstruction, he thought about running for governor of Ohio. Uh, ultimately was not successful. But you know the disqualification applies to holding state office if you've taken an oath to uphold the uh, federal constitution. So um, the way I, I like to think about this enabling issue, would, would the state of Ohio's legislature, its general assembly, have required uh, advance permission from Congress in order to create a statutory mechanism to figure out whether or not it was going to adjudicate the disqualification of Landingham from being eligible to serve as governor. That seems an odd theory of federalism for 1866. I think they would again understood that Congress had preemptive authority control any procedure that was going to adjudicate Section 3 disqualification, but in the absence of that statute, Ohio could create a, uh, its own mechanism to say, we're going to adjudicate whether Vlandingham can be our governor or whether he's disqualified because there's a constitutional provision that disqualifies someone if he, part if he sufficiently participated in, in the Civil War. So, um, so I think there's a lot of complexity to this enabling legislation issue that we were only touching the surface of today. Thinking about this, the idea of finding an avenue to have this question decided without the patchwork problem and the chaos problem that you've mentioned, what about an action under the Federal Declaratory Judgment Act? It's an act of Congress, arguably satisfies Section 5, and we'd need a plaintiff withstanding, not a generalized voter, but let's say a Secretary of State of some state brings a declaratory judgment action against Donald Trump, we get it to federal court, you get a federal hearing, decisions that can be promptly appealed. Are there any such actions percolating? And if, if not, why not? I mean, a, a couple of actions like that have been attempted. Um, uh, they've been thrown out of court so far, not by secretaries of state, um, but by others. Um, I think in that situation, you are off it. So in the declaratory judgment context, and I'm not an expert in this, I may be able to defer to you all <laughs> thinking about it. Usually it just it's the reverse of if you're thinking about an injunctive relief case. So you're still going to have the same kinds of remedy issues and the ability of that plaintiff to have served as a defendant or on the flip side of the case. And in a lot of these cases, the Secretary of State is saying, I have no discretion, I have no authority, whatever it might be. So there are you would have to find a jurisdiction where the Secretary of State has the authority and is preemptively trying to get out there. And maybe you would be able to sort of gin up a controversy this way. But so far, the situation has been the secretaries of state say they lack the authority. So to be able to go into court and seek a declaratory judgment on the front end, you're going to run into the same justiciability problems as if they were being sued on the back end and they're saying, I have no authority. So I have to spend some more time thinking about other situations where, where a deck action might work here. But that's sort of my initial reaction. Final question. Hi, so my question is, let's say that he is not allowed to be on the ballot, but enough people write him in 
so that he does somehow get a majority of American popular vote and then somehow makes it through the Electoral College, is he still then possible to be president? Or is there some stopgap? Or do we have to go through an impeachment hearing if he does get seated? So there's, there's two layers of complexity there. The first is write-ins. Some states ban write-ins for president. In other states, um, they have a fake write-in mechanism. Um, and by this is what I mean. You're not voting for president. You're voting for the electors behind the president. And in some states, they will say, oh, you can write in the president's name. But if there's no electors behind it, there's no ability to convert your vote into a slate of electors behind it. So we have to get through all these complicated rules of how write-ins work in the states. But let's, let's assume that aside. And we get through all of that. Then, yeah, the challenge is, Professor Foley's talked about a little bit already, too. Uh, you know, it was on January 6th, 2025, in the joint session, and they start opening, you know, Vice President Harris starts opening envelopes. Are there objections from members of Congress to say these votes were not regularly given? And then we're, we're off to a very troubling spot to think about Congress engaged in two-hour serial debates on the floor of Congress, state by state, about whether or not to count the electoral votes cast for him. Um, that's a very hard place to be, to be thinking about those issues. It's a lower threshold, as he says, majority of both houses, which is a lower threshold than impeaching the candidate. Um, not a place we want to find ourselves, and a reason why I think we want some resolution well in advance. Yeah, and by the way, because Derek alluded to the 20th Amendment, the, 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 there's an intersection of the 12th Amendment, 20th Amendment, and this new Electoral Count Reform Act, which is a little tricky because... Let's say con both houses of Congress sustain, sustain objections to electoral votes uh, cast for Trump. We get to that point on the ground that he was disqualified and can't serve office. Um, I think the better reading of all those three provisions means that they still have to count the votes for the disqualified candidate as if he had been a deceased candidate so that his running mate, who won the vice presidency and is not disqualified on section three grounds gets to be acting president of the 20th amendment. Because otherwise, if you don't count the electoral votes, then let's just assume Biden is his only opponent. He would be the only candidate with electoral votes and nobody would have gotten a majority of electoral votes. And then under the contingent provision, uh, contingent election provision of the 12th amendment, the house has to vote for president in this odd procedure among the candidates who received electoral votes. But Biden would have only gotten the only electoral votes that had not been voided under, you, you follow me? And, and so the, it's a very ugly interpretive issue and political machinations. You don't, you don't want Democrats in Congress thinking, oh, well, we can make Biden president again because he's the only one who got legitimate electoral votes. The, the proper, I think, resolution of this, that would be to disqualify Trump and let his running mate become uh, become acting president, but it's a mess that we hope we never, never, never get to. So with that, we are at time. Uh, please help me in thanking our panelists. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Petya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was the University of Minnesota Law School staff. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening.
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.